our speaker today. But hell, we're neighbors, you know. He's an he's an Arky, and I'm an Oki, so uh, we're. Uh, but uh, at this time, I want to ask him if he'll come up, Paul. Well, thank you both. Thank you all for letting me be up here this morning. Uh, I am Paul. I am an alcoholic. I want to welcome the newcomers that did stand up. Uh, I want to welcome all the alcoholics that are here this morning. The non-alcoholics, the yo-yos, the non-smokers, the overeaters, <clears throat> and those too who suffer grave emotional and mental disorders. Welcome. He seems to be in the front row this morning. I sure glad to see you people get up this morning. I don't know what the hell you did, though. You know, the only reason I got up, they told me to come up here. But uh, all these happy smiles. Oh, only in Alcoholics Anonymous can you find people get up at 9 o'clock in the morning and, and say, it's a beautiful day, you know. Regardless of how bad it is, it's a beautiful day. But some of them won't admit it, you know. You know, an exchange says that alcohol will remove stains from summer clothes. Uh, this is correct. Alcohol will also remove all the winter clothes, all the spring clothes, and all the fall clothes, too. Not only off of the back of the man who drinks it, but from his wife and children as well. Alcohol will also remove a man's business, a man's friends, the happy look on children's faces. A man from respectable society to the penitentiary. A man from the highway of heaven to the road to hell. And it will make a wildcat out of an otherwise inoffensive citizen. As a remover of things, alcohol has no equal. And that's why I'm here this morning, 9 o'clock in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, it's a hell of a place to be. You all must wonder what the hell I talk, uh, why I talk the way I do. Well, I tell you. I'm from West Memphis, Arkansas, and recently from Anaheim, California. And uh, I'm a cow Indian, born in Hawaiian Islands, raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's a hell of a mixture. <laughs> I arrived at this country at a very early age, and I ended up at the Port of Embarkation in New Orleans, Louisiana. And after a few years around that town, I found out that uh, I wanted to be a part of, and I studied the natives, and I found out that they drank Southern Comfort. And I hit some of that southern comfort, and it made me. And I finally was able to infiltrate. And the more I drank, finally I integrated. And then, you know what? I kept on drinking, and the natives became friendly. And then they got intimate, and they started to call me pineapple. Goddamn, I hated to be called a pineapple, because where I came from, a pineapple is a fruit, you know. <laughs> so I got drunk at them. And I'm just like every drunk in this room. I got drunk at them. You know, there's no different. I'm one of them traveling drunks. You know, even in my drinking days, I travel a lot. And thank God for the privilege of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been able to do a lot of traveling in my sobriety. And, uh, you know, I live... Uh, my mother was one of them Amy McPherson's. Uh, she was a missionary. They recruited her out of territories before they became reservations in Oklahoma. And they made a missionary out of her. And she had a lot of money and a lot of men. And I got to live with the affluent... You know, and every time I got drunk, I was bad for these people standing in their community, so I moved a lot. And it was many years ago, I arrived in the state of California, and I arrived in a town that they call Cucamonga. That was a beautiful town, and uh, they had nothing but vineyards and wineries there. 
And I went to every winery they had except Virginia Dare. I always thought it was a house of ill repute, you know. <laughs> it was there in that San Bernardino County where I found out that they expelled you from school for being under the influence of alcohol. So then I migrated to Los Angeles, California, and there they threw me out of school for growing marijuana in a horticulture class, you know. These people just didn't understand me. And uh, finally, uh, the war came along, and I volunteered for and was accepted. And, you know, they, uh, first uh, when I got there, they said that for 30 days I'd be quarantined. Now, if you're the type of drunk I was, you didn't have anything that was, was contagious because when you're a horizontal drunk, you don't get involved in them things where you catch anything, you know. And um, so why they want to quarantine me? But being a drunk, type I was, the first thing that came to my mind, where am I going to get a drink at for the next 30 days? And the cunning, baffling part of the insidious disease of alcoholism took over. I will find a way. You know, on the first day I was there, they gave me a comb. That afternoon, they cut all of my hair off. Second day I was there, they gave me a toothbrush. That afternoon, they pulled six of my teeth out. Well, third day I was there, they gave me a jockstrap. And needless to say, they didn't find me that afternoon. <laughs> and six weeks later, they found me. I was booked in the city jail on plain drunk charge. And this is the way I finished my basic training, in the brig. One day, they come out and told me what end of the rifle the bullet went out of. And they says, pack your gear. I did. I packed my gear. I was one of them good soldiers. I needed a lot of courage. And I went downtown. I bought everything I could buy and stole everything I couldn't buy. And I filled up my duffel bag. And uh, that's all you need to fight a war, courage. You don't need all them clothes, you know, and all that other stuff that hangs on you. And naturally, it was good for the two-day drunk across the ocean, and we arrived on that beach, and uh, I saw all the heroes. They went in there with their rifles like that. Not me. I've never been a hero. I've been a good drunk. And uh, I went in at Port Arms, and I saw a guy stagger on the beach, and I run up to him, and I smelled him, and sure enough, now I know what they mean. There's no love like one drunk for another drunk. I fell in love with that boy. He had it. He knew how to make it. And we got drunk together. And we fought this war together. And we got shot at together, but he died alone. But you know, the day he got killed, I sat there and I mourned him. Two-fifths worth. That's all he had. And after I got them two-fifths down my gillet, I went on and I'm going to avenge the death of my buddy. Now I had something to win the war for. Naturally, when you stag on the battlefield, you get hit, and you get hit bad, and they carried me off the battlefield to send me back to the States and introduced me to that wonderful world of pain-killing, hallucinating drug. Oh, boy, I want to stay in there forever. And this is when my dreams started to come about. I started in dreams, you know. And it reminds me, a few years ago, back home in Meridian, Mississippi, uh, Dr. King was going down the road. I had a dream. I had a dream. And he was talking about that ethnic freedom. We are Alcoholics Anonymous. We've been having a dream since the day we took our first drink. The idea that someday, somehow, we are going to be whatever. I had a dream. And I tried to make that dream come true at the bottom of a bottle. I tried to make that dream come true at the end of a joint. I tried to make that dream come true at the end of a, uh, of a syringe, you know. And none of that thing took. And I had a dream. And this has been my drunken life. I had a dream. I got out of that service, and I'm going to show these people what a hero looked like. You know, I got that ruptured duck, and I fixed up his rupture, and I got them crutches, and I polished all the silver on them, and I got all the silver that was exposed in my body, and I polished that up. I went out there, and I bought my 1941 Cadillac. It was a beautiful automobile. It had all the windows in it, no air conditioning. But, you know, this is part of the thing, the dream, the great dream. I'm going to show them how great I am. And 
What happened? I get to start the low ride in these streets, you know, for you low riders and high rollers. And that was me. 102 degree heat, the windows rolled up, no air conditioning, you know. <clears throat> and every time I have to come to California or come to Arizona or going back home, I come through Arizona and Texas and Nevada and all these places. And every time somebody passes me with the windows rolled up, there's only one thing that goes through my mind. Do they or don't they? <laughs> you know? And... Uh, I was able to uh, continue my education. Matter of fact, I also went in, into the churches. I was trying to find a place where I could be comfortable. I went to the uh, Methodist Church, uh, the Protestant Church, the Baptist Church, Northeast, West, South. I even went to the Free Baptist Church. I also went to uh, Four Square, and that was Two Square. You know, and they prayed over me, sprinkled on me, didn't take. I went to the Catholic Church, and I got mad at the man the first day I was there. You know, he went up there and he had the shakes. He had to hold on to some kind of change or something, you know, and he kept on wiggling and things. And after a while, he'd take a drink and he didn't offer me one, but I'll show him. <laughs> I went back the following week and I had my own in my straw. And today I can look in retrospect and I can see the progressiveness of the disease of alcoholism when I had to go in there with two half pints. And then the day came, you know, and us drunk, we have a bad pride and a real good image of ourselves. I got thinking about three half pints, you know, two up here. One in your hip pocket, it'd make you pretty bulgy. So I decided on a, on a full pint and a half pint, and that made me lopsided, so I gave up the Catholic Church. And I proceeded to Culver City, California. I went to work for and live with a Jewish family, and they took me to the synagogue, and I was going to become a Jewish convert. As a matter of fact, I was going to become the only Indian Sam and Davis in the state of California, you know. And I had my star of David all polished up, ready for the day that I became a true Jew. But you see, I couldn't eat that kosher. And uh, so, and all these things were going about. I went on to school and got my education, got my uh, license to practice as a mortician in the state of California. And you know, when I got that license, as I was going up there to get my license and my degree, I, just, I said, boy, I picked the only profession for me. Because now people were telling me I drink too much, I stink too much, and everything I did, I did too much. And I was going into a profession where people weren't going to talk back to me. <clears throat> and my working conditions would be just like those bars, nice and cool, you know. And I'd be driving them long and low-lying automobiles with real air conditioning in them. And um, so I uh, finally I got my own mortuary. I continued to drink, and I got to be known as a drunken undertaker in that town. You know, and this hell and a drunk's ego and a drunk's pride, and especially when he has an overly high opinion of himself. And I showed them people. I left them. I left that town. Now God knows whatever happened to them. Two guys were in the back room, but I left that goddamn town. <laughs> and I migrated back to Newport Beach, California. My mother was learning how to walk on water by then, you know. And, and we were down in uh, Newport Beach. That's close to Chucky Baby's place up there. And um, he, uh, uh, there I took a retreat. I'd get saved every morning. You didn't take, because as soon as I got saved, I got me a half pint, you know. Watched down to salvation. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I had to get my do a little thinking. I decided I'd go back to Los Angeles and apply for, and I did apply for and became a deputy coroner in Los Angeles, California. And it was real nice. And, you know, when you're a coroner now, you have a, a prestige. I chose to maintain my residency in Balboa and commute to Los Angeles. And this way it'd give me time to taper on. All us drunks taper on to jobs, you know. <clears throat> we all taper on a little bit at a time. And uh, I tapered on so good, I'd been working about two months, something like that. And uh, 
I was getting to work drunk. Finally, one day came, they picked me up at 3rd and Main Street in Los Angeles, drunk on dog shift, about, uh, oh, on the way to work, uh, day shift. And they took me to Lincoln Heights Jail. And, you know, I learned something on that trip. You get caught early in the morning, come midnight, you're at the bottom of the pile. And if you live in Balboa, California, and you work in Los Angeles, California, there's no way in the world you're going to get home and change clothes, go to work the following day. So this is when I decided I'd never let booze interfere with my work. I just wouldn't go to work. It's easier. Alcoholic is always trying to find the easiest off the way. I kept on drinking, kept on going to jail, and this old particular judge there, he, he, he said to me, I promise you, you keep coming back here, I'm going to give you 180 days. And I kept going back. And you know that man had an honest program. <laughs> he gave me 180 days. But in the inner rim while I was going in and out of there, I also got married. You know, drunks will do the for, do the, for some of the things, you know, Jesus. And I got married. Uh, I didn't know she... Uh, one morning I woke up and I asked her what she'd been doing in my bed for four days. And she showed me a marriage license, said we was married. Uh, damn, I must have... You talk about blackouts. This is what blows my mind on Alcoholics Anonymous. You'll get, get a guy up here and give you a blow-by-blow blow description of things he did in the blackout. Oh, I'd really blow your mind. Sort of puts a little uh, uh, thing thinking in your head, you know. I, yeah, I wake up four days later and ask. She shows me this marriage license. I must have been insane. I know what about that incomprehensible demoralization is talking about, you know. And uh, so naturally, I keep going to jails and... Uh, Judge gave me them 180, suspended 90, so I was doing 90. And they notified me that my wife and her boyfriend had been killed in an automobile accident. Well, you see, prior to this, I'd never been a husband or anything like that before, and I thought the husbands insured the wives, you know. They, you know, protect them, and double indemnity for hangnails, miscarriages, and anything else accidental there. And so naturally, she was well insured. I'm very insurance conscious as far as uh, life hereafter is concerned. And... Uh, so the first thing that came to my mind, she was with her boyfriend, and so he should marry her, right? She loved him. She didn't love me. And she had no, no business with him, so he was driving the car or whatever. Let him marry her, and all I have to do is get out of here and go up there and collect by doubling indemnity. But in the meantime, I also have to write a letter. And the day I got out, I rushed over to uh, uh, Hall of Justice, and I walked in with all my self-righteous indignation, like only a drunk can have it when he walks in with an, on the defensive. And, uh, sir, I come in here to tender my resignation. Well, we fired you 90 days ago. I said, no, sir, this is 96 days later. I come here to tender my resignation, and I want this to be a part of my file. And now, besides, I don't need you no more. I got my insurance money. And I'm going out there, and I'm going to become independent in Burma. That's the guy who does peace work. <laughs> and, uh, and right now, he said, I'm like all drunks. I never like the 40-hour week. You know, it's bad. It sort of interrupts your drinking. And uh, I chose a Thursday to go to work on. That's the best day of the week for any of y'all that uh, don't like to work too much. Thursday is the best day of the week. To go to work on this. You work like I did. It took me an hour and a half to do a quick case, and that was it. And I could sit there Friday and feel good. I went to work last night. I worked a whole hour and a half. And uh, see, it took me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to get well from Sunday, you know. And this is the period where I became a periodic drunk. 
a periodic drunk. Then I would only get drunk twice a week. First time for three days and the second time for four. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> having money in my pocket, time in my hands, I migrated down into all them little towns going down the coast. I finally ended up in a city they called Watts, California, and that was my utopia. They had Indians there, they had Mexicans there, they had Japs, they had Chinamen, they had Portuguese, they had everything that you wanted. It was the international fair of them. And I found my niche in there, and I bought my position in the city of Watts. And it was there where I could be anything I wanted to be. And I found me a little telephone pole on the 103rd Street in Grandy up there. And it was on that telephone pole there where I would sit there and do like Othero says, beat, dance to the beat of my own drum. And being an Indian, I like to dance to your drums, too. And then I looked down the street, and if even if I didn't know you, I would dance to the beat of your own drums. And I became known as a finger-snapping, babbling idiot, you know. And uh, it was there on that corner where they would come and pick me up and take me and lock me up in the padded cell and get that monkey off my back. And uh, they leave me in there for 72 hours. I knew for 72 hours I'd be out of circulation, and I'd bang my head up against that padded cell, and then they'd peep in that hole and say, you're going home tomorrow. Now, I can understand the insanity that they talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. The insanity would return immediately. Where will I get drunk at tomorrow? And the day came when I was got so paranoid out there. I didn't know whether I was walking too slow or running too fast. And I was no longer walking on the sidewalks, but I found the best alleys I could, you know. I was running paranoid out there. And they kept coming after me. And one day they came for me and said, We got the goods on you this time. You're going to penitentiary. I said, Thank God. You know, suddenly I said, Thank God. Deep down. See, I never was one of them religious persons. And you all that hear me talk about religion, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the way it was for me in my home, in my own environment. And uh, I had always seen the hypocrisy in my own home. And there's no way that I could believe in a white man's religion when they came and took my mommy away who rejected me all them years. And I blamed them. See, I blamed the people who came and made a missionary out of my mother. Because of that, I got rejection. There's no way I could accept white man's religion. And I had my still believe in my Indian beliefs today. I believe in his spiritual spirituality very heavily today. And uh, but you see, I couldn't believe in that white man's religion. And uh, I can't say that I was praying for them to catch me, but I was just tired of running out there. And they sent me to the penitentiary as prescribed by law. And being wise now to the ways of the jailhouses, I walked in that penitentiary. And I walked that walk, I talked that talk, I walked slow, and I drank a lot of water, and, you know, the minimum time came up. And they said to me, you are rehabilitated. We are going to grant you a parole. I said, hoopy-doo. And uh, I'm rehabilitated. I get out, get me a 50 VW Hopper, and find me a blonde. The day came, I got the 50 VW Hopper, I got that courage and that Maybelline look in my eyes, and the blonde materialized. <coughs> Naturally, when you're rehabilitated like that, you don't stay out too long. I stayed out six weeks, and I was back in with a violation of parole and a new beef. You know, you got a, a habit to do. you got a, you got a addiction to take care of, and a blonde to boot, you know, and she ain't got no money. So you got to go steal. you got to lie, rob, and cheat. I went back. I One more time, I walked that walk, took that dog, walked slow, and I had drank a hell of a lot more water. One more time, they said I was rehabilitated. I did the minimum one more time. They're going to give you another parole. It's time I get out, I'll get me another 55 W. Hopper. 
Only this time I find me redhead. See? Booze is never the problem. You ask any alcoholic in here, booze is never the problem. Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says alcohol is not a problem. It's learning how to live without this stuff. Learning how to live without this stuff. That's the problem. You got a drinking problem, you're in the right place? Here. Yeah. Drinking no problem. You and I know what to do about a physical hangover. We make a run about six o'clock in the morning and we get it down and it feels good. And then, then the new me takes over. Then the new me wants to drink. Then the new me says, I'll get well tomorrow. And then tomorrow is just what brought us to Alcoholics Anonymous. Too many of them. Because them tomorrows is the ones that were full of remorse, regret, shame, and embarrassment. No guilt. Because as drunks, we don't feel guilty because we're perfect people. Ask anybody walking doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you got any character defects? Not me, baby. Some goddamn people out there. He ain't even got no morals. How the hell can you get character defects if you ain't got no morals? <laughs> so I got out. And I stayed out a wee bit longer. I don't know whether I was walking faster or running slower, but I stayed out a wee bit longer. One day I get a phone call from my mother to meet her at the hospital. I arrived there. She expired. And as I stood over her remains, I vowed I would take another drink until she was properly buried. See, we drunks is sharp. We always have that reservation. Four days later, she was properly buried. Four days later, I took that drink. It talks about that in Chapter 3 of a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. It'll take me insanity or death. And, you know, through the death of my mother, I became sole heir to her estate. She left me enough money and real property where I could live comfortable the rest of my life if I chose to do so. So naturally, I had to accustom myself to that manner of living. And to begin with, you have to have wheels. And I went to Earl C. Anthony one day in Los Angeles, California. I bought that big Packard in the window. And I took it home. And you know what? Inside of my garage stood an identical car I had bought the day before. <laughs> About eight or nine years ago, I was in the city of Bellflower, California. I went to a meeting there. And a boy come out there and knew me 35 years ago. And he says to me, you still have any $50 Cadillacs for sale? I said, $50 Cadillacs? What are you talking about? He says, when you were drunk, you used to sell your Cadillacs for $50. So why did I sell them for $50? You didn't want to think people were a damn fool, you know. You've always been at the contention. It might be a dumb Indian, but you're not stupid. And um, so I, I would sell them to you for $50. And this is the things that I was doing, how to win friends and influence people, you know. And I kept drinking that way. And uh, one day I came to, one more time, I came to at the high power tank at the Los Angeles County Jail. I guess I'd been locked up about six weeks according to my booking report. And I'd finally come off of the withdrawals and they took me back to my residence. And there I found 24 cases of Fleshman's bourbon, some heroin, some pills, multicolored pills, white ones, yellow ones, you name it. And it looked like a farmer's village, an alfalfa field, the way the grass was stacked up around that house. There's only one thing I don't understand today. How in the hell did the little six-pack of Eastside beer get in that refrigerator? I know the rest of the stuff I might see the stole about, you know. Anyway, one more time they convicted me. One more time they sentenced me. This time they sentenced me to die in the gas chamber at San Quentin State Penitentiary. I was to die by a cyanide pellet on a day to be set by the then governor of the state of California. And when I arrived on death row, there's only one thing that came through my mind. If there is a God... Why is he letting this happen to me? You see, this was my thinking. Poor Paul. Why is he letting this happen to me? Having the money, my right to appeals, I hired four of the most competent lawyers in the United States and we proceeded to fight my case. 
Two and a half years later, I was brought off a death row, retried, reset, and I went back to San Quentin with two terms of life, one term of fighter life. Life in the state of California is 44 years. I have two of them, that's 88. You take fighter life, split it any way you want to. I was still doomed to die inside of a state penitentiary. They took me out of St. Quentin a few months later, and they sent me to Folsom, a maximum security institution. And I'd been there a few months. Finally, they brought in some guy and said he was my cell partner. About three weeks later, he said, hi. He said, shut up. <clears throat> you see, by this time, I had a wall between me, you, they, them, and it ten feet wide. And nobody's going to come to me, and I thought they put a stool pigeon in my cell to start with. Another three or four weeks later, he said, what's your name? My name's on this door, just my cell, and don't you ever forget it, now shut up. We had quite a conversation going, that guy and I. <laughs> I didn't trust him, he didn't trust me. He didn't know whether you'd go to sleep with one eye open or both of them. And this is the way I was at that time, hate and hostility, and I, you know, and I didn't trust no one. And they told him that, watch him. I wasn't in there because I, I had been plucking chickens at a chicken factory. Oh, this boy, one morning he got up, he was jawing. Oh, my God, he carrying on something terrible. He says, good morning, just like us alcoholics, regardless of how bad you feel. Yeah, good morning. Beautiful day. He said, let's go to AA meeting. What's that, AA? Oh, he says, a bunch of winos come in here and they tell some funny jokes, you know. And I'd been locked up for seven years at that time. Night before I sent the word out, send me any and everything that has chemicals in it. I am going to overdose. You know, this old thing is the old drunken dream. It's only one way to go. It's loaded and you know what, you know. I could you know what, so I might as well just go loaded. And <laughs> <clears throat> so they sent it all in. And you know what? I couldn't even get high. I couldn't even get a buzz on. And this boy was jawing on, you know. They well, uh, you don't feel like being funny today. Well, go up there and see what they're wearing. And I really wasn't interested in what these drunks was wearing because I'd be wearing blues for the rest of my life. Finally, he said, let's go up there and break up the mind of the week. Now, many, many, many years ago, I had forbidden a calendar in my cell. All the newspapers I got were about a month old, so naturally I didn't know what day it was. In all my years of incarceration, I never received a letter, and the time I got any visit, it cost me a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollars, and that was my attorneys coming to see me, you know. And uh, so I got to thinking, what day of the week is this? What month are we in? I knew it wasn't turkey time yet. Turkey time—that's uh, Thanksgiving time. Because on the menu at the mess hall, it said that we was going to have uh, turkey, and that stuff you put in it, the, what is that crap you call it, shove it up the back, <laughs> and um, that red, that red, red, red stuff, that cranberry sauce, and uh, what is, oh, that pumpkin pie. I knew it wasn't Thanksgiving because that was still on the menu, and we eventually was going to get there. So I know it was around turkey time, and I know it wasn't Christmas time yet, because every Christmas, the Salvation Army would come by, and they save me, and then they'd leave me a bag of hard candy so the Salvation would last, you know. And um, so I knew it wasn't that time of the year, 
but I relented. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with an open mind, and my hearing aid turned off. <laughs> and there's an old boy there. He wrote back. He said, if you want, what do we have? You've got to get off your ass and do something about it. I heard the word ass, and I turned my hearing aid on. I want to hear more about him. And he went out to say, you don't have to drink no more raisin jack potato mash. Hit them old men on the head, take their pills away from And he knew about me. He knew my little game inside that penitentiary. Immediately, my paranoia said, in you come of your little paranoid here today, baby, you're in the right place. And those two patients told me about you because you and I walked that same road. And that's what immediately came to my mind. Some stupid and told this man I was coming. 350 convicts sat in that mess hall, and he was talking about me, you know, and I got resentful, and I got hateful, and I'll, ch- I'll show them. And on the way back to the cell, I asked his cell partner, what do you know about this program called Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, not a thing, baby. Today's meeting was a bummer. They didn't have any funnies there. And it was true. It was very serious for me, because all through that meeting, how that bastard know I was coming, you know. And I asked, he says, but down at the end of the cell block, there is a book, and it says Alcoholics Anonymous on it. You know, I was one of them lightweights at that time. I weighed 218 pounds, and uh, I, 218 pounds, you're supposed to wear a nice size 42, but I had a 56 on, you know. You're a lot of room, and jackets were the same way. Uh, they don't really custom tailor your clothes in the penitentiary. <laughs> <clears throat> and... Um, so I walked down the road there, and I saw this book. It was the red one, and it said Alcoholics Anonymous on it. And I got that thing, and I stuck it in my waistband, and I went back to my cell with this book. I stole my first big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the best job I ever pulled in my life. <laughs> the only job I was ever successful at was stealing a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. At that time, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous was not on the approved list of approved literature. So I had to read this book with the lights from the gun towers. And, you know, like all alcoholics, when we arrive in here, we're super intelligent, man. I was an intellectual giant when I got here. And I read this with all my intellect. And uh, today I find that my intellect was my rationalization. And at that time, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous consisted of six chapters. And I started to read from the beginning. And I read about Bill W., God bless him, how he lost it all on Wall Street. Now, had the man been a man of my nature... He'd have money. I had some of my property, you know, and, uh, but he chose to gamble Wall Street, so he deserved to be an alcoholic. Then I read about Dr. Bob, M.D. Damn fool, had he been an undertaker, he'd never become an alcoholic, you know. <laughs> Chapter 3, it talked about the various ways that you, not me, you, don't we all walk in this way? You, you don't understand me, I'm different. You have tried to drink like normal people, and first thing comes to any intellect's mind is, what is normal? What is normal? What's good for you is not good for me, you know? So, and besides, it didn't mention my pills in there. It didn't mention the grass. It didn't mention the heroin. And much less uh, for your nutmeg freaks. It didn't even mention nutmeg in there, you know? And uh, so, I turned that around in chapter 5. It talked about a God, like I told you before, it was hard for me to have any concept of a man with whiskers and uh, tripping over a robe trying to walk on water, you know, and uh, to tell me these things, uh, I could not believe it. That's the only thing I'd ever seen uh, of what they would call a God. And um, so I flipped that over in chapter 5, 
You got in there, and it's right nice till the point where they say, yeah, honesty. Honesty's fine. It's fine, you know. But when you got to get rigorous about it, it'll really blow your image, especially if you're anything like I was. You see, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I looked that word up in the dictionary. And it said that an alcoholic was a person who lived in the skid row part of town. And I didn't live in the skid row part of town. I lived in the third floor at Folsom State Penitentiary. Nothing higher old as the lowriders and lifers, you know. There's no way in the world I'm going to be an alcoholic. I'd cop out to being a high rolling low-riding junkie, but damn if I want to be an alcoholic, you know. And uh, if I got honest with me, I'd have to tell these people what it really was. That all that mail they used to see come under my cell door, I would go into rubbish cans. And I'd pick it up and then I'd slip it under my door, you know. I had to, to let them believe that all these multitude of friends I had out there. I used to pay a guy two packs of cigarettes every Sunday so that he could announce my name on the speaker as if I had a visitor. Then I would go hide during that time and they thought, how was your visit? It was beautiful. You know, me and that big wall in that linen closet. This is where I was hiding doing visiting now. Seventeen years that I was locked up, not once did I have a visit out there, a letter. And, you know, to me it's one of the greatest things that was ever happened. Today I can look back and be grateful for that because it gave Paul a chance to find Paul. And then I read on in this book, and I read in the chapter 6 where it says, Do unto others. Hey, that was nothing new for a guy of my nature. I'd been doing that all of my life. Do unto others and split. <laughs> and depends on whom you do it to, how fast you split. So that took care of that. And the bottom of the book, of the chapter 6, it said, If you don't believe what's written on these pages, we suggest you go out, get drunk, and come back when you're ready. But I kept going back to their meetings. February the 3rd of 1953 at Folsom State Penitentiary. I went to this meeting, and this man come in with a pretty blue suit on. And up to this time, I could not identify or relate with you all about your drunkologues. I couldn't, uh, you, you take any newcomer come in here. He's not going to cop out to being a windshield puker, an armrest sleeper, a sleepover beside and under the bridge. Nah, no, 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 no drunk is going to admit to that. He's not even going to rusty, uh, rusty zipper. You know, I drank in Beverly Hills, we'll tell you. Well, I drank up in Scottsdale with them good people. Ain't no difference you drink up in Scottsdale or you drink down here on uh, Buckeye Road. Is it, wherever you pee, baby, your zipper going to get just as rusty. <laughs> and it's going to do the same thing. The same thing it does to the brain of Scottsdale is going to do it to on Buckeye Street in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona. Make them Georgia, they get just as rusty over there, isn't that right? You tell them how it is. And, uh, you see, uh, this was my rationale. I could not relate to you people. I had too much money on my property. You deserve to be alcoholics. Look at you. You want what I have. I said, hell no. God. You know, at that time, where the hell is hell at? Hell was the oldest sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous at that time, you know? But there was another boy for you newcomers. I heard this said yesterday by the cop from New Mexico. Well, they told me the same thing. I was a baby. I was young at the age of 28. Before you got your pencils out right now, I'm going to clarify it for you so you can listen. I was 28 years old when I arrived here. I've been sober 25 and a half years. I'm 54 years old. Now, we got that all together. Now, put your pencils away and we can get on for your mathematicians. <clears throat> so, 
I, uh, this boy said to me, young man, I spilled more than you drink. And I looked up to him, I said, yo, son of a bitch, if you had to spill so much, you got here at a young age like I did. You know, and this is what it all boils down to. You don't spill none, and you'll get here faster. You know. <laughs> you got to get it on. And if you're anything like I am, I used to like to drink that stuff that burn going down, and it burned coming up. God damn, it feels good. Then you pray to God. God, get me out of this one. God, let, let me out of here, and I'll never do it again. For you all that wonder if God ever answers prayers, he must have you here. All your drunken days you was asking, God, get me out of here. God, help me. Help me do something about this. God answered your prayer. You are here. You are here. But you must remember, God's delays are not denials. He's got to put us through our crap so that we can get here and be grateful for what it is like today. This is the way it really boils down to. And, you know, I, this February the 3rd of 1953, I heard this man... And for, I've been trying to find out, and for you people want to know what the hell an alcoholic is, and I hear that so many meetings, what is an alcoholic? Chapter 3, paragraph 2 in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. We conceded to animals that we're an alcoholic. That is the first step in recovery. Start on page 58, paragraph 2. We conceded to animals that we were alcoholic. That is the first step in recovery. But prior to that, it says, That it says, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. Now, if you could control your drinking, what the hell are you blowing up a week going to meetings for when you can go out there and get it on, you know? <laughs> what are you doing here at 9 o'clock in the morning, said Elizabeth, a ex-convict tell you that what the hell it was like? People that get it on, they're taking care of it right now. They're having the new me take over, you know? They call themselves social drinkers. <laughs> I made the remark here a while ago. Another boy asked me. I knew an Indian boy down there, a Mexican boy down in Tucson. He has the same name I do. I said, well, I'll tell you what. When us Indians started to social drink, we adopted some English names, you know. <laughs> and we left these tribal names set behind. But anyway, this makes sense to me. February the 3rd of 1953, without a belief in a God, without a degree of honesty, and without a desire to stop drinking, I surrendered to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a special interest case to the state of California, and every year they would take me to a psychiatrist. My second year on this program, without a drink, a pillow, a sedate, and drug, he says to me, Paul, how are you coming along with your steps? I said, what steps are you talking about, ma'am? He says, Paul, I am talking about the 12 steps of a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what do you know about them? He says, Paul, I have been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous for seven years. You know, and a wall went down. That wall that I had put up there, and it was one drunk talking to another drunk. Today, I look back and I remember that the second year that I went to see that man, they didn't have that wire mesh between us. You know, it was just like this. I could reach out and feel him. He says, you don't believe in a God. I says, no way. There's no way I believe in the God. How do you find him? Well, he says, most people, you've got to take a moral inventory, but you don't have any. <laughs> so I'm doomed to die in purgatory, huh? No, he says, there is a solution. Paul, I want you to go back to your cell and you start writing an autobiography. And for once in your life, you'll be honest with Paul. 
To hell with everybody else. Be honest with Paul. You write it down, you read it, you memorize it, you tear it up, and you flush it down the toilet. I said, why all that? He says, because if they ever find that, baby, you got some more lives coming, and you can't afford none. <laughs> and I did. I went back to my cell, and I did as the man said, and I started to write about Paul. At the beginning, nothing was coming together, and finally it started to come out. I started to, to talk to Paul on paper, and I started to read, and I started to memorize, and I started to tear up and to flush. For two and a half years, I wrote, I read, I memorized, I tore, and I flushed for two and a half years. My cell became known as running water. <laughs> and uh, four and a half years without a drink, a pillow, a sedating drug, man, I was sick. I was looking at the first con conclusion of my first, I would say, inventory in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't like what I saw. It wasn't the people I'd hurt, used, and abused, but it was old so-and-so that Paul was. And I developed the same things that you and I do when we start to get honest. I heard so many people talk about hurting here. God damn, that's good. I love to see people hurt. You know what it tells me? You was getting honest. And we can't stand what we see. We can't stand it. And we get them guilts and we get that self-disgust. And this is when I started to go into that early menopause, you know. Hot, cold, shaking, you know. I didn't know it sit up, stand up. And I was just going wild in that cell, you know. I was a wild man. By this time, I was back in the single cell because I told him I didn't want a cell partner. I had to get my own crap together. And uh, I reverted to my bunk. And I reverted to the old drunken idea. Put that pillow over my head and erase that cool world. You know how you all used to wake up with that sheet and peek out of it? But this is just what I was doing. I put that pillow over my eyes, and as I laid there on my bunk, I heard myself say, God grant me the serenity. I jumped out of there with all my rationale. Me, I'm asking a God for something. What the hell, you know? And I walked over to my cell window, and I saw that mountain. I saw that mountain. And I'd been in that cell for a hell of a lot of years. But that day I saw that mountain. That day I came to realize that my lawyers had not put that, that mountain there and that my money had not painted it green. It was that day that I was able to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And my insanity was my rationalization. And what prolonged my insanity was the procrastination on writing the rationalization. You know, then I justified the procrastination and I justified the rationalization. And so it got heavier. And this is one of my emotional growth periods when I found out that when you're knee deep in your shit, it fertilizes your emotional growth. You know, and because uh, there's no place else to go. There's no place else to go but to self and to turn over and let go to whatever. It was that day that I was able to make a decision to turn my will, my life, over to care of God as I understood him. And I had gone from the dry state into a degree of sobriety. And I found out, you know, this turn it over. As it said so loosely, them guys in that cell next to me used to play turn it over, turn it over. I never saw them at meetings, you know. This is what used to blow my mind. What, what program were they working? But then again, I found out what I had to turn over. Ego, pride, envy, jealousy, selfishness, self-centeredness. And I never had resentments till I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You people gave me a new word for my hate and hostility. That's all I had. 
and resentments. And then after I inventoried resentments, I found out I didn't even have resentments. It was all self-righteous indignation based on my feelings of inferiority and fear, you know, and I reacted in self-righteousness. Today I don't have resentment because I'm aware that there's no such a thing as that within my body, but it is total reaction. And today, as the book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me, no human power can give me my sobriety. It comes through only one power. I choose to call it God today. And it took me many years in Alcoholics Anonymous to surrender to a God of my own understanding. It was very obvious that day as I was turning my will in my life over the care of God as I understood him. That day I had found my freedom. I had a dream. My dream had come true. I was free from bondage of self. That day I was released from prison inside of a state penitentiary. A prison I put myself into the day I took my first drink. And it was good. I would languish in that jail the rest of my life the way I felt that day. And I was free. And that had been my biggest problem. Not being able to learn how to live with Paul. It must have been very obvious there was an attitude change. A few years later, they called me into the captain's office, or rather, they took me. And he sat there with all his piety, effective April the 30th of 1964. We are hereby granting you a lifetime parole. I had been locked up for 17 years, and I had been sober 11 and a half years. Today, I walked out of that penitentiary. And by this time, my lawyers and my taxes and everything else that was involved in things of daily living that were financial had wiped me out financially. But the state of California was very good to me. They gave me a $10 bill and a please don't rain on me suit. A cardboard had some hot dog shoes, you know. And this is the way that I walked out at penitentiary. And there was a man there. He said, you SOB, you'll be back. I says, thank you, sir. He says, you're stealing something, but I can't find it. And I sure did. I stole one more time. I brought home my God I found inside that state penitentiary. I brought home a foundation in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I walked on them streets of this society. You see, I feared when this man was telling me the conditions of my parole, my fears returned. It had been 17 years since I'd been up there. And uh, in penitentiary like Alcoholics Anonymous, you got yo-yos too, you know. <clears throat> and they come and they tell you, they got freeways out there, fast cars, weak woman, bad booze, and all this other good stuff. And these things came through my mind. I'd never seen a freeway in all my life. What is them things they call freeways? And these faster cars and all these other good things. And as I was listening to that man, and I got to thinking about these people in Alcoholics Anonymous that said that we care. You know, I was a little uh, leery. I felt a lot of rejection from a lot of these people when they used to come in there for the simple reason. They'd get up and they'd get ready to leave, and they'd tell the guy sitting next to me, when you get out, you come see us. We're at uh, the YWCA in Long Beach, California, second floor. And when they get to me, they say, if you ever get out, you know. Well, naturally, you're a little rejection already, you know, and this is one thing that us alcoholics can't stand is rejection. And we can't even can't stand acceptance. We fear acceptance because behind every acceptance has always been rejection. So we walk and hang loose. I arrived in Long Beach, California, 8.45 p.m. that night. And I stood at that doorway and there's a group of people just like you. It was 8.45, the meeting was going, and they stopped that meeting and they stood up. And they told me some of the sweetest words I've ever heard in my life. And I'm going to extend this to you alcoholic, you non-alcoholics, and you new ones. 
Welcome home. Welcome home. Sweet words. Where else could I go to find a family that I have today in Alcoholics Anonymous? You cannot go to your kin and tell them how you feel gut level. But you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and the family understands. Welcome home. They made me a part of, regardless of where I came from, what I've done. You're here. That's what's important. We are here for one thing. It's to grow up, clean up, and sober up. This is what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. Sure, I went through them inventories, and I went through them criticisms. I found out that my critics are my greatest morale boosters. And they got so heavy on me, I started to stay sober out of spite. I'll show them. I won't give them the benefit of the doubt of saying I told you so. And I started, I couldn't afford them big heavy iron anymore, so I bought the next best thing I could afford. I bought me a, a Mexican Thunderbird. That's a 1953 Studebaker. <clears throat> and I started to cruise the streets of this uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I found out that Alcoholics Anonymous was co-ed out here. And I got to taking these girls to dinners, to dances, to meetings. And I get them at home at night. I didn't know whether to kiss them goodnight or say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> And then I started to fall in love. I sound like that guy from Macon, Georgia, only he married them. And, uh, but you see, I started to fall in love seven nights a week in a different house. Seven mornings a week at a different house. I threw me out. I walked that beach. I had a beaten path. Poor Paul. Poor Paul. And one day I got halfway down the path. I said, poor Paul, hell, that ain't no broken heart. That's a wounded ego, and that's time for me to take an emotional inventory. And I packed up that automobile, a lot of people, a lot of pencil, and I headed for Clamath Falls, Oregon. I said, I'm going into this forest for 29 days and 29 nights, and I'm going to take me an emotional inventory. And I drove into the forest 29 miles. I don't know where the 29 came, but this is what was on my mind. And I parked that car, and I started to write an emotional inventory. And you know, on top of the paper I put, am I in love or in heat? Needless to say, 29 seconds later, I was out of that forest. <laughs> I could see the ego and the conquest. So I dedicated my life to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I became panel chairman here, panel chairman there. And I would go out there and do the 12-step work. I carried my God bag in one hand and my book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the other. And, you know, I got so close to God. This was another one of my growing facades. I had this God, and if I talked to you about God, you didn't want to hear about God. You know, and I was so godly that I'd run home, I'd dial a prayer, see if I had a message. You know, <clears throat> and um, so... And after a while, it, it, things really got sharp and heavy, you know, and uh, uh, I had to decide that uh, I was really going into some depressions, and I wasn't getting a pat in the back, and I didn't believe in pat in the backs, you know, because I went down to talk to some group one uh, Thursday night, and this boy pumped my shoulder out of socket, and he says, I'll never forget you. Oh, you're the greatest thing that... And Tuesday I went back to that meeting. It was a different type of meeting. And this boy came up to me and says, I know you. I've seen you somewhere. Were you ever at Joe's recovery house? Were you ever in this jail? Were you there? Uh, you know, I said, I'm the guy that uh, you got my socket out of place last week. So this is what I find. I look out for them pad in the back because it's only one foot away from a kick in the ass. 
And this is when I found out that in Alcoholics Anonymous, I came here to save my ass, not my face. And then I started to grow. I started to grow. I didn't have to perform for you anymore. I didn't have to seek your approval because God had accepted me. I became one of God's kids. And as one of God's kids, I was not a doormat. And I'd been out uh, May the 6th, 1966. The parole office called me back again. I'll be through in a minute. And the um, <coughs> parole office called me back again. And there were five of them, just like here. There's two here and the big one. You know, an eagle. And he had a piece of paper in front of him. Effective April the 6th, uh, May the 6th of 1966, you are hereby discharged from a lifetime parole. My God. Man talked about crying last night. Baby, I can cry today. I can cry them tears of gratitude instead of tears of self-pity. And these people were crying because they were happy. I was no longer in the custody of the state of California. And nine days later, I was bonded by the federal government as a courier. And I was carrying $250,000, dollars of payrolls in cash that I was paying off field crews in the state of Utah and Montana, you know. And I was contracted to these individuals to pay off. And uh, later on, I got my own business. I still am in business today. And a whole bunch of things have happened in these last 15 years, almost 15 years. I've had the privilege to, on behalf of Alcoholics Anonymous, to carry the disease or whatever you may wish to call it. But there's only one thing I carry across the world. There is hope. Hope. It's all we have as long as we don't drink. Today, I will tell the newcomer, and for you who are having a little struggle about things, you know, want to know how I have come to these things? I will give you a secret. All things come to he who waiteth, if he worketh like hell while he waiteth. And if we stay sober one more day, at, one day at a time, you know, these things are going to happen. It has been through sobriety that I was able to go before the legislature in the state of California and uh, stand before them on my own merits. I did not go to one member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a letter of recommendation. I went before the Board of Supervisors in the county of Los Angeles and stood before them on my own merits. I went before the county, Shelby County, Tennessee, on my own merits. And there, today, I am a deputy in the state of California. I'm, I carry a badge that cop that was here from New Mexico. I am a Quincy under contract to the county of Los Angeles. I do carry a police commission in the state of California. And I have been invited to Memphis, Tennessee to become a medical examiner there. Become a medical examiner there. You see, these things happen. I have talked to these people because of sobriety. There is nothing impossible regardless if you say today, where well, I come from, there is no chance. They told me that when I walked out of the penitentiary that I had two strikes against me. The only strikes I have against me are the ones that I make, and Book of Alcoholics Anonymous told me that. There is, I have succeeded if in spite of, this was my attitude, in spite of you. I stepped on a lot of toes, but God damn it, you're standing in my way, I'm going to put you out of my way. I have places to go and things to do, you know. Uh, this uh, common welfare is very important to me today. Today, I'm so grateful. Like I say, I, had, uh, I have to cop out to this, dear convention wanted to pay my way up here and up to today I had never accepted anything anybody I will pay my own way as long as I am sober as long as I am able to pay my own way because the book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me I have to give this away for no fees or rewards of any kind in order for me to maintain my sobriety but I sure appreciate the privilege and it is a privilege to be at Phoenix Arizona to share with you because you are making a 12-step call on me today 
You know what I'm really grateful for? Not them nine cars, not that motor home, not that house. And you know what I'm grateful for? For the mere fact that I was able to wake up instead of come to. And then I put my feet on the side of that bed and I run my toes through that rug. God damn, it feels good. I know concrete is steel. And I open my window and there's no bars on that window. Them things I'm grateful. I walked out of my toilet at home and I looked at that bed. And you know that that bed is bigger than any cell I ever lived in. It's bigger than any cell I ever lived in. For them things I'm grateful. And I owe it. I owe a debt of gratitude to the people for 11 and a half years carried this message to me for no fees or rewards of any kind. God, I don't know where they slipped. God knows where they ate, but there was a long journey just to tell me there was hope for a guy like me. And I've come to Phoenix, Arizona to tell you whether you be a newcomer or you be someone who's down deep in your own shit, there is hope. There is hope as long as you don't drink. And there's only one thing I know today. What's going to get me drunk is not them emotional involvements. It's not if I don't do the steps, because it took me 11 years before I acquired a code of morals where I could take them all inventory, you know. I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to acquire character and then get it defected here, you know. And <laughs> but the whole thing is, we kid here, we don't have these things. Newcomer, and they tell you you got to do this. How in the hell can you do it when you don't have the tools to work with? How can you turn your life and your will over to a God you don't believe in, a God you don't have any faith in? You have to acquire that faith. How can you take a moral inventory without morals? How can you have defects of character removed when you have none? And what drunk gets here because he was a moral person? You think about that. Moral people don't become alcoholics. They drink with their little finger up, you know. <laughs> so I had to come here to get all these things going for me. And today, 25 and a half years later, I have not worked any step in its entirety. It's impossible. It says in the 11th step, seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscience, contact with God, as I understand Him. Pray only for the knowledge of His will for me and the power to carry that out. In essence, I'm admitting my life is still unmanageable. I turn as to be restored to sanity for one more day because for me to start rationalizing, I will be drunk. Through that eleventh step, I turn my will in my life. His will be done, not mine. And I've been able to take a moral inventory by living, not working. Living these steps. Work is hard for an alcoholic. Live them, it's easier. And here I am, copping a portion of my fifth to you. I've made amends where it was possible. And I had no shortcomings till I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got rid of them quickly. And uh, then in the tenth step, wherever I may be, I take that stand step every night. I ask myself one simple question. Did I do the best of my ability today? And if I come up with a not guilty verdict, I sleep good. And here I am, practicing the principles, carrying the message. Whatever message you may have received this morning, may I say one thing? If nothing else, there is hope for a guy like me. I believe in miracles. I am one. Thank you. Welcome to the 28th Annual Arizona State Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Fred, and I'm an alcoholic. This is an open Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and not everyone present is a member of our fellowship. The